Well, I hope uh, you're encouraged by that and you feel the same way we feel, um, that God's got this and he's excited. Um, and I love the way the elders put it, that uh, they feel the burden of this, but they don't feel the stress. That's a good place to be. And so let me just assure you, you've got a great elder board, um, you've got a great staff, and we've just got a great church. And so I, I want to encourage you to do exactly what they said and join us in praying about this season um, and join us in praying about what, what's next for Northside in a really great way. Uh, but, but my name's Jacob. I forgot to introduce myself. My name's Jacob. It is good to be here with you this weekend. I'm on the student team um, and I'm excited today because we're going to do something a, a little different than what we normally do. We're just going to look at one story in the Bible and we're just going to walk all the way through it. And, and I'm, good news for you, I, I have had a lot of storytelling practice. Recently, I have a, a nine-month-old daughter and she says about my story reading abilities, dad, 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 dad. So I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. I feel like the reviews are high. Um, and this is a story, you might know it, you might not know it. That's okay if you don't. But it was once called the finest short story that has ever been written. It's a story in the Bible. And you might be like, okay, like, did Jesus say that? Like, okay, cool. Did, did a pastor say that? No, a man by the name of Charles Dickens, one of the best authors to ever walk the face of this earth, called this story the finest story, short story ever written. It's called The Lost Son, or perhaps you know it better as The Prodigal Son. It's a parable. And this, it fits with this weekend because our Quest 52 question is, how does Jesus feel about Prodigals. And to answer that question, we have to know what prodigal means. And maybe you think you know. Um, I, I think you might be surprised. Or maybe you're listening to me say this word prodigal and you're like, what is, is that a Pokemon? Like, what is happening right now? What is a prodigal? It's not. Um, in fact, if, if you look at it, culturally, the word prodigal, we have made it become someone who has returned after a long absence. If we call someone the prodigal son, it's someone who's returned after a long absence. I remember, this is gonna be an old-fashioned statement, I remember reading a newspaper article. Remember those? Um, and I remember it was this big, huge spread on the front page, and it was, it was the best basketball player of all time, talking about when he returned, and it was LeBron James. That's right, I said it. The best basketball player of all time. LeBron James returned, one boo, okay, I'll take that. Um, he returned to Cleveland after he made a sinful choice and went to Miami. He returned though, and it said this, LeBron James, the prodigal son. And that's what we believe prodigal means. But really, if you look in this story, if you look in the Bible, um, this is not used in a noun sense. It's not talking about someone, it's talking about how they live is an adjective. And if you wanna get into what um, the prodigal adjective means, check this out, you might be surprised. It's the idea of lavish expenditure or wastefulness. It's ex recklessly extravagant or a broader definition. It would be used to describe someone, the adjective way, of someone who is wandering, foolish, or rebellious. So not just those who have returned after a long absence, but those who are wandering, foolish, and rebellious. And really, if you look at it, prodigal is so much more about someone's decisions than it is about their destination. It's about what they're doing as opposed to where they end up. And so this question of how does Jesus feel about prodigals, we might be like, okay, how does Jesus feel about people who leave and come back to church? Like, pretty good, Jacob. I think that's the whole point. But how does Jesus feel about those who are still out there? How does Jesus feel about those who are still wandering? 
How does he feel about those who waste away opportunities and blessings that he's put before them? How does Jesus feel about us when we rebel and act in rebellious ways? How does Jesus feel about us when we make foolish choices and decisions on purpose? How does Jesus feel about those who are wandering, foolish, and rebellious? How does Jesus feel about prodigals? And that's the question we're going to answer today by looking at this story. And I say this all the time, there is power when the church opens the Bible together and it's a heavy, heavy, heavy scripture week. And so I'm going to encourage you right now to get your Bible, um, whether it be the physical version, whether it be the iPad, the digital on your phone, an iPod, maybe you have the original scrolls, get it out. Um, Luke 15, we're going to go to, and you're going to head to verse 11. Head to verse 11 in Luke 15. And while you're doing that, I'm going to read you the context of this verse because the context really matters. And it's in verse 1. And it says this, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen, to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. Don't miss this. The reason Jesus is telling this story is because there are two distinct audiences around him. On the one side, he has, he has these, these, these sinners and these notorious um, bad people, these tax collectors. You could probably describe them as wandering, uh, reckless, or lost prodigals. But then on the other side, he has these Pharisees and these teachers of religious law. And these would be the people that are doing everything right on the outside. And Jesus has this opportunity in this moment to teach and to reach the lost, but also to teach and realign those who are perceived to be near to God. So verse three, it says, so Jesus told them this story. And he begins in verse 11. Read it with me. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. And so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. And, and you need to know this really quick. There's gonna be a lot of little things in here. There's a lot of symbolism, but there's also a lot of cultural nuances in this story that the listeners, they would have heard this and their eyes would have started popping out of their sockets. Like one of the first things that happens, the son goes up to the dad and says, hey dad, um, I want my share of the inheritance now. That, that is essentially, it's, it's on par with him saying, dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have the money that you're gonna give me when you're dead now. And in Middle Eastern culture, this was a huge no-no. And I think it's fair to say, even in American culture, this is a huge no-no. My dad is in the tech booth right now. And I just imagine if after service I went to him, I was like, hey man, I know you're still alive, but can I have the smoker like now? Like one day you're gonna give me the smoker. Like, can I have the smoker now? Would that be okay? That's not gonna go well. In fact, the people listening to this story, when they heard the younger son say that, the next sentence they would have expected would have been, so the father beat the son. That's what they would have expected. But then even more wildly, the father says yes. And again, it's one of those cultural nuances where the, the eyes pop out of the head. And he divides the wealth. And, and the people listening would be like, how is this, this father so foolish? How is he so dumb that he would do that? I can't believe this is happening. But the story goes on. It says a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land. He began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. And, and th that word in there, pods, 
that the man is feeding the pigs. These are fruit. They're little fruits that look like locusts. They're called karabs. And karabs were reserved for pigs, donkeys, horses, and the poorest of the poor people. And Jesus is making a point. This son is at the lowest of the low. Physically, he is starving. He wants to eat what the the pigs are eating. Financially, he he doesn't have any money. He has to work in a pig farm. If you want to talk about religiously, um, when Jesus said that he's on a pig farm, the Jewish teachers in that point would have been like, oh no, because pigs right there would have made him religiously unclean. He emotionally, I mean, he has no one to go to. So he is at the lowest point of his life, financially, physically, religiously, relationally, emotionally, everything is bad. And some of the people in the crowd would have been like, oh, he deserves it, right? Like he did that to his dad. But then other people listening would have thought, that's me. And the story goes on. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he turned home to his father. Remember we talked about this. Prodigal, what it really means is talking about someone's decisions more than, than their destinations, about their, how they live as opposed to where they end up. And, and Jesus starts to make this clear connection to everyone listening. That the person in this story, the younger son in this story is living a prodigal lifestyle. But at the same time, this son in the story starts to believe that his life is defined by his actions. He says, I I am living this. I have done things wrong. And the parallels are clear between the crowd of notorious sinners and tax collectors and the son in the story. And maybe the parallels are clear to this son and you Someone you know, someone you're trying to pour into, someone who might be in your future. I'm going to just go through the story and look for a second. He starts and he rejects the father. And he says, your, your way isn't good. I, I want to go do my own thing. He rejects the father and he takes what's his and he goes and lives his own life. Do you know anybody in your life who believes that their way of living is superior to God's? And, and they, they might not say it, but their actions show it. And they want their time of wild living. See, wild doesn't just mean crazy. I've seen crazy living. Um, I I went to third through fifth grade camp this year. There was a moment where I saw like the 150 third through fifth graders crush up Fruit Loops into water, drink it, sprint 200 yards and play water hose cornhole. It was crazy, all right? That's not what this verse is talking about. This verse, the word wild is actually where we get the word prodigal. It's reckless. It's foolish, it's extravagant. It's the reason he's called the prodigal son. It's about his lifestyle in that moment. I work with a lot of high schoolers. And one of the worst things I hear, but far too often, is when a high school student says to me, hey, I want to do this God thing eventually in life, but right now I just want to live my life. And they're just missing it. Do you know anyone who has hit rock bottom? And they're at the lowest of the low, religiously, financially, physically, emotionally, relationally, whatever that looks like. And they're looking around and the alarms are going off and you're looking at them and you're just thinking, I, I don't like, what are you going to do next? And they don't know what they're going to do and their way isn't working anymore. So they're not really sure what they're going to do. And it's just, they're at the bottom of life. Or do you know anyone? And this is the most heartbreaking one, in my opinion, who just like the son 
no longer feels that they are worthy of the love of God. Do you notice that he says that in verse 18 and 19? I will go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned to his father. I am no longer worthy. And it's a cause and effect. He says, because of what I've done, because of the sins against heaven and against you, that makes me unworthy. And this son believes that what he has done is who he is. And our question today is, is how does Jesus feel about prodigals? How does Jesus feel about him? How does Jesus feel about those in the crowd listening who are saying, oh, that's me you can fill in all these questions for those who have wandered in this room or maybe you know someone who's wandering and they've told Jesus that their way of living is superior to his way of living. Will, will Jesus accept them? How does he feel about them? For those who've made decisions that they feel have marked them for life and maybe there's something, there's someone in this room, there's, there's something in your past where you're like, I can never overcome that. That is who I am. I know that mistake. It's gonna live with me as long as I go. Does Jesus see them differently? For those that are at rock bottom and don't know what to do, does Jesus care for them? And for those who don't feel that they're worthy of the love of God and are trying to earn their way back, will he accept them? And the good news is, for you and for me, that this story goes on. Verse 20, so he returned home to his father and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But check this out, verse 22. But his father said to his servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he has found. So the party begins. Can we talk about what the Bible doesn't say in this moment? It doesn't say that when the son started to walk back up, the father's like, oh my gosh, he's back. Lock the door, pull the shades. Like he wants the rest of the money. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that the father was standing there on the porch with his arms crossed and his foot tapping. You know this look. And when the son gets up, he says, prodigal middle name son, how dare you show your face here? It doesn't say that. In fact, you want to talk about cultural nuances that would have broken people's brains. It says that the father runs to the son. He didn't do that in Middle Eastern culture. If you were dignified, you didn't run. In fact, the slower you go is probably the more dignified you were. But here's the father running. I can just imagine the servant seeing it being like, is the house on fire? Like what's happening right now? Why is he running? It says more than that, the father calls him son. After everything he has done, he, he, he defines and reminds the son of his identity in that moment. Check out what he does. He says, bring the robe. He says, bring the finest robe. That would have been the father's robe, by the way. That would have signified that he's back in the family. Servants don't get robes. Sons do. It says, bring the ring. It's a signet ring. It would have given him authority in the household. Servants don't get rings. Sons do. It says, bring the sandals. Put them on his feet. Servants don't get sandals. That signifies that you are, part, you are a son to the father. Servants don't get sandals, but sons do. And kill Bessie, the fattened calf. Servants don't get parties, but sons do. And don't miss this. The father wasn't concerned 
about where he had been, what he had done, where the money was, who he had been with, all the things that had been going on. He didn't ask about the smell, why he smelled like pigs. He didn't ask about any of that. He just simply was happy that his son was home. In that moment, it wasn't about what he had done. It was about who he was. And the father reminds it. He says, my son. He redefines his identity. He says, you were lost, but now you are found. You were dead, but now that you are alive, you are my son, not a servant. And it wasn't about what he did. It was about who he was. Um, a few years ago, my wife and I, had the opportunity, we were in California um, the day before our anniversary and pray for us, uh, we're, we love Disney. And so just pray for us on our bank account at some point in our lives. But um, we decided to go to Disneyland. And so we, we, we were there and I, if you've never been to Disneyland before, it's much more of a local park. And so you have to get there early to try to find parking. And, and, and we pull into where you're supposed to get into the parking garage. We've already fought Anaheim traffic. And while we're pulling in, it is just like the most bottleneck thing ever. And we're in traffic and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is gonna take forever. You just have to pick a line and sit there. And, and I'm stressed and sh everyone's stressed. I mean, I don't think anyone likes traffic. I don't think anyone in this room right now is just like, I love the Sherman Mittenness clothes. It's awesome, right? <laughs> like the best part of my day is from 8 a.m. to 11.30 when I'm sitting in traffic. It's great. I don't think anyone's like that. But so we're sitting there. And after like 25, 30 minutes, we finally pull up to the gate, the stall where the guy is taking money. And he works for Disney, so he's way over the top happy. And I'm like, hello, how's it going? He's like, hello, I like, welcome to Disneyland. What brings you in today? I'm like, oh, well, you know, we're from Indiana. We're going home tomorrow. Tomorrow's also our anniversary. We just wanted to spend it here and have some fun. He's like, that's incredible. This is awesome. And I'm just trying to move forward. So I'm like, dude, can you just like, like it's 25, right? Can you take my card? And he looks at me and says, oh no, friend, I can't take that. And I think, well, I don't have any cash. And if you think I'm getting out of this line, you're insane. Like, that's not happening. And he says, oh no, I can't take your cash either. And I'm like, is it because I'm from Indiana? Is that what this is? Like, is that, it's a Midwest thing. And he says, no, sir, you are Mickey's guest of the day. And I said, are you gonna hurt me? Like, <laughs> what is happening right now? And he hands me this paper and I got, I got a picture of it up on the screen. Check this out. He hands me this paper. And he says, anytime you're driving through this parking garage from now on, I want you to show this to the attendant and they're gonna take you somewhere else. And so I'm like, okay. And he says, congratulations. And I'm like, I didn't do anything. I'm not really sure why you congratulate me, but okay. And so I take the paper and I drive up and, I, and we get to the first person. He's got the whistle and he's doing his hands like this. And, 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 and I show him the paper and he's telling people to go this way. And all of a sudden he goes, he's like, looks. And he's like, oh, you. And he starts moving cones for me. No one's ever moved cones for me in their whole life. That's never happened in my entire life. And he's like, you're going this way. And I'm like, all right, sir. And we, and we go up to the next person, the next person, the next person. This happens like five or six times. And I, I looked this up this week. There are 10,500 parking spots in this parking garage. And it took us all the way to spot number one. And it was right by where you, where you go to get onto this tram and you go to get into the, to the exit to Disneyland. And we're getting out and then the, the people there are clapping for us. They're like, congratulations. And I'm like, I don't know what's happening. Like, this is crazy. <laughs> And so we think it's over and we start going down the escalator to get on in line for this tram. We can see the line. I'm just like, okay, so we save like a few minutes, right? Like it's gonna be like a probably 30 minute wait to get on the tram and it's gonna be a 15 minute bus ride or tram ride over to Disneyland. And all of a sudden I hear over the, the radios, um, they're, they're talking about us and they're like, Mickey's guest of the day wearing ripped jeans and a gray sweatshirt. And I'm like, they, they are gonna hurt us. It's happening. I knew it. And we get to the bottom and this lady comes up to us. She goes, are you Mickey's guest of the day? And I'm like, maybe. Like, 
And she says, oh, we're so happy. This is amazing. We can't believe you're here. Wow. She says, we haven't done this in years. And we decided to do it today. And I'm like, this is, this is great. And I go to get in line for the champ. She goes, oh, no, 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 no. You're coming with me. And she walks us over and she takes us around these like cinder block walls in back into the parking garage. And there, instead of a tram waiting for us, we have this, check this out. <laughs> and we get in there, we're the only people in there. And I was like, why are you doing this? And she says, because you're Mickey's guest of the day. And we're going and we're driving all these back roads to get there. And, and instead of waiting 25 minutes for a line, we're, we're in this private bus. And while we're driving, the driver is on the loudspeaker saying like, make way for Mickey's guest of the day. And people are like, yeah, like waving at us. And I'm like, what? This is insane. And we, and we finally get to the gates of Disneyland and we, we just pass all these people. We're one of the first people in there. And we're getting off and the bus driver looks at us and says, hey, have a magical day. And I'm like, I already am. Like, <laughs> this is amazing. And I didn't, I mean, I didn't pay for it. It wasn't like I slipped the dude a hundred and was just like, Mickey's guest of the day, please. That didn't happen. I didn't let 16 people over in front of me to that, that all of a sudden this guy was like, oh, this guy deserves it. But for some reason, it's nothing that I did. They treated me differently. It's because that day I was Mickey's guest of the day. It wasn't about what I did. It was completely about who I was. And we're asking this question, how does Jesus feel about prodigals? And it's not about what they've done. It's about who they are. And honestly, he just wants them to come home. He just wants his prodigal sons and daughters to come home. And, and hear me, this doesn't negate the necessity for repentance and confession in the life of the believer. This doesn't negate the desire that Jesus has for us to be obedient to his commands and what he's asked us to do. But it does highlight the heart of the Father for those who are far from him. He says, it's not about what they've done. We shouldn't be taking a tally of all their sins. It's about who they are. He just wants them to come home. And I think it would be appropriate, it'd be awesome if we just ended right there and we all got out early and be awesome. But the story isn't over yet because the father had two sons. And the older son, the one who stayed, he comes back near the house and he hears what's going on. And he walks up and he says, he talks to the servant and says, hey, what, what's going on in there? And the servant's like, have you not heard? Your brother's back. Like we're having a party. The, the calf's dead, steaks and burgers out back. Like we are partying, dude. Your brother is home. And you would hope that the brother would be like, oh my gosh, he's home. I can't believe it. I'm so excited. But listen to how Jesus describes the way that the brother responds. Verse 28, the older brother was angry. One go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, all these years, I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to do. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet, when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? And he's, he's mad. And the reason why is because all he can see is what his brother has done in comparison to what he has done. And it's not about who he is. It's all about what he's done. If you don't believe me, I mean, look, look, look what he does. He says, I've never left home. I've never done anything bad. I've never gone this way. But your, your son, 
He went and squandered money on prostitutes. I've never denied you. And you're throwing him a party and I haven't gotten one go. In fact, if you notice that, he says, he doesn't even call him his brother. He says, this son of yours has done this. And there's this this comparison. He says, look what I've done compared to what he's done. And now you're doing this for him. This is unbelievable, Father. And, And the beauty of this, we could do this for a long time. I could talk about all the things about what the son did and how it compares to the the biblical symbolism. But really, the beauty is in the father's response. And in verse 28, it says, the older brother was angry and his father came out and begged him. The same way that the father ran to the younger son, the father came out of the house to the older brother. The father goes on to talk to him and he says, look, dear son, pause. The same way that the father reminded the younger son of his identity, he says, you are no longer dead, you are alive, you are no longer lost, you are found, you are not a servant, you are a son. The first thing the father does, it says, my dear son, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. And you know what's so interesting about this story? It ends with no conclusion. It ends in high tension with one brother on the inside parting with the father and one brother on the outside angry, refusing to go in. And we talked earlier about prodigals. It's more about their decisions than their destination. So the question would become this, what about someone who is on the outside made every right decision? They've never left home, they're doing everything right, but their destination, specifically the destination of their heart is far from God. And I think it's fair to say that would make him a lost son. You've heard the story as the prodigal son, you've heard the story as the lost son. What if it was both? that you have one son on the inside, one son at the outside at the end of the story. And here's the deal, every single person knew exactly who Jesus was talking about at this point. The Pharisees and the religious teachers, the people who are supposed to be near to God. But the story ends with one son out and one son in, but the story ends with one father begging both of them to just come home. How does Jesus feel about prodigals? He just wants them to come home. Whether they are lost far away from home or they are lost near home, he just wants them to come home. He just wants them to be in tune with his heart. Um, A Dutch priest by the name of Rembrandt, he did a painting of this scene. I'm gonna have a picture of it, you can look at it. And there's a lot of things about this we could talk about. Um, One is, is there's the son, he's tattered, he's, he's bald, you'll notice. That was a big deal back then. He's, he's in the middle of an embrace with the father. The father has his hands open receiving the son. Then you notice the older brother um, to the right, he's dressed like the father. You notice that, they're dressed the same, but he is multiple steps away from the younger son. And not only that, his hands are closed. And maybe the most telling part is that the father and the son are in the light, but the older son is in the dark. And we could look at this for hours, and find different things. The good news is someone way smarter than me already did. Literally looked at this painting for hours and wrote a book. His name's Henry Nouwen. He's a Dutch priest. 
And after looking at this and just thinking and contemplating for hours, he came to this conclusion. He said, what, what if this story isn't simply about if you are the lost son or if you are the prodigal son, but this story is about will you become the father? Will you not just identify with one of these two and say, okay, this is who I am, but will you know where you're at and then become the father? Will you reflect the love that the father has for those who are lost? Will you love the people around you? Are you willing to look reckless and foolish? Are you willing to look to get burnt by someone when it comes to them coming home to Jesus? Are you willing to beg and plead with older brothers in this room who say it's about what they've done and not what, who they are and say, no, 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 that's, that's not it. We have to go to the heart of the issue, you will you become the father. There's a song as we end, I just want us to hear because how Jesus feels about prodigals is how we should feel about prodigals too. In the song, it's called Proud of a Father. And it just talks about how Jesus, how, how the father sees people, both those who are lost afar and lost near home. What I want you to do during this song is I'm gonna challenge you um, to, to sit, to stay with us, but to not stand, but to just sit and receive it. If you feel the need, you can raise a hand and then surrender and say, I know who I am, I know who I wanna become. If you feel the need, you can open some hands on, on your, your lap and just receive, it's a sign of reception. But I'm gonna challenge you, just receive this song, not just the music, but the truth of what it means. Let's receive this together right now.